Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. In this episode, I'm speaking with Darius Mirshazadeh. Darius is a high-growth CEO, serial entrepreneur, and culture-building mad scientist who was ranked number nine on Glassdoor's list of top CEOs of small and medium companies in the U.S. He's led organizations that have won numerous Stevie Awards, been named number three place to work by San Francisco Business Times, and has landed at number 40 on the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing companies. He has been recognized in the New York Times and Inc. Magazine for innovation in corporate culture, and his business insights and thought leadership have been published in Huffington Post, Entrepreneur.com, Fast Company, and Forbes. Darius is also the author of The Core Value Equation, a framework to drive results, create limitless scale, and win the war for talent. Today, Darius joins the podcast to share his unique entrepreneurial journey from building a multi-million dollar mortgage company that came crashing down to teaching entrepreneurs how to leverage core values so that they can create high growth, high impact, and highly scalable businesses. One more thing before we get to today's interview. If you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button on Apple or wherever you listen so new episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. Thanks for listening, and without further delay, my conversation with Darius Mirshazadeh. All right, well... Darius, I'm so glad that we could get together and spend some time together. We've actually been hanging a lot here recently. And and really, I feel like I'm the lucky recipient of, you know, you and your incredible expertise and knowledge. So thanks for joining us. Man, the, the feeling is mutual, Justin. I'm a, the cheerleader from behind the, the stands. I'm like going on, going on the Amazon. I'm like, man, he's got to be number one by now. Number one, you know, and I'm totally cheering on the lifestyle investor, the fact that you guys hit number one. I mean, you were like number one for the entire, every nonfiction book on Amazon. Is that correct? Yeah. I I mean, I was totally blown away and totally pleased. But yeah, for for MLK Week, we were number one uh, nonfiction, all books, and then number eight overall of every book, 50 million books out there. uh, We were number eight there for uh, a certain period of time. We fluctuated anywhere from like eight was the best to like uh, somewhere in the top 25 uh, each day that week. And I still think we're we're ranked pretty high right now. You don't have to answer this, but are you guys getting other types of rankings outside of Amazon, like the Wall Street Journal or anything like that? Are you, are you getting there? We'll see. I think time will tell. Uh, I'm eagerly awaiting. Um, I think that there is a strong likelihood of it, but I don't want to, you know, what is it? Count your chickens before they hatch. So I'm just being patient. And you know what? If it doesn't hit, that's all right. And if it does, it would be exciting. I didn't write the book for a bestseller, but if it does, I feel like it, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it it feels good that the hard work is recognized. Yeah. I was talking to, um, I was on clubhouse. I was talking to Marshall Goldsmith, who's written a ton of books, wrote what got you here, won't get you there. And he's, you know, he's like voted number one business coach in the world. His clients are like the CEO of Boeing. Right. And he was talking about, the wow. likelihood to get even get a person to buy your book is like it's like under one percent. Like to do it like unprovoked, not like family and friends. It's super small, right? Let alone to be number one for nonfiction for the whole Amazon, which is insanity. And 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 this is coming from personal experience, right? Like we both launched books. I mean, I was like, I think top 100 in business, and I killed myself, right? So 
it's a testament to the content because the book game is interesting. It's the first business I've ever seen that like, I don't care how hard you worked. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter. Like you could kill yourself and people are just like, don't care, you know? So I think a lot of it has to do with how does it resonate? And my, in my book, I think it actually resonates with a lot of people. So I've, I'm like, typically, I mean, now my book's been out for four months, the core value equation. And yeah, it's tip. It's like top top twenty in in office management on a regular basis, which is awesome. It's it's it keeps getting bought. It's I'm actually selling more books every month. But uh, our our good friend John Rule and said Darius, the first day is you know everyone gets really caught up in the first week because you're you're kind of taught to do that, and, and that ether rubs off you know pretty quick, right? You know, a month from now you won't feel the same way about it, right? Two months from now it's, it'll just be something you did two months ago, but. He's like, it's a five-year event. And I know, and he got, he learned that from a friend of yours who's someone I just recently met, Hal Elrod, who did Miracle Morning, right? So I got really comfortable with that, which was, this is just the beginning, you know? Like, like the awards are great, but like impacting lives is way more important, you know? So that's, that's where I'm, I'm pumped, but I'm pumped for you because you deserve it, man. The resonance is there and I'm rooting for you, so... Well, I appreciate it. And we're going to get into your book here a little bit later on today. And I'm, I'm excited about your book uh, for many reasons and on many levels. But um, I, one of the things I want to say is, you know, it's really easy to sell yourself short. This is for anyone and everyone. Like I've sold myself short. I feel like, uh, you know, you sold yourself short. A lot of people I know sell themselves short on many different things. But when it comes to writing a book, that's a huge undertaking. And no matter how many people buy it, it's a great accomplishment and you're going to have impact. And um, so I heard a stat. So I became friends with, so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Neil Strauss. He's an author. Uh, he's one of my favorite all-time authors. Well, he's good friends uh, with, the, with someone I just became friends with who owns a local acai bowl and smoothie place here in town called Sun Life Organics. His name's Khalil. And he's really good friends with Neil. And uh, he edited his book uh, when it came out. And his book is incredible, by the way. Also, uh, I'm, I'm in the, the midst of reading his. But before I even share that, one of the things that he said that Neil told him is that the average book, and this is going to blow your mind, the average book sells 200 copies. That's it. The average book. So I know you've sold way more than that. Oh yeah, no, I sold a ton of. I've sold, I probably sold like seven or eight thousand books now. You know, it's a lot of books. Uh, I did it the old-fashioned way, elbow grease. <laughs> I w- I went out and just started banging on my 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 network's doors and got them to buy books. Which was when I when, I mean I did that. That was pre-sold. I pre-sold a lot of those books. But to your point, it was it's it's you let you got to leverage your strengths, right? I didn't have a community, I didn't have a, a list, I didn't have a digital network, I had, I had literally zero of that, which is the one thing I would tell any any good author, new author that really wants to leverage their book sale is if you want to do the work to really maximize the impact, you got to have a community to put the, the work into because without that, it's it is a heavier lift, you know. For me, I, I, those my number one mistake was I didn't have a community beyond me. You know, I have 100 CEOs are my friends and they all bought bulk. They bought a lot of books and they gave them out to their teams. Um, but that doesn't move the needle if you want to get or like organic traffic, if you want to get, you know, the guy, the, so if you want to get that word of mouth type of momentum, you got to have a community to put the book into. So for me, I'm building that right now, which is, which is fun and cool. And, and, I, and I, I was, I don't remember what I was talking about. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a sleeper. My book's going to be one of those where it's like, it's just the long ramp up and it's going to sell a ton of books over a long period of time. And I'm like, I'm cool with that. Well, I have no doubt because, well, and we can get into all this now, we can get into it later. But I mean, you've built this incredible coaching practice just out of nowhere, which is so cool. And you're coaching just high level executives. You're coaching people on literally reorganizing and recreating the values of their organization and like just retooling and reframing uh, what people do. And I know this firsthand because you're doing this with front row dads. And I'm part of that organization. I'm on the board of Front Row uh, International, Front Row Global. And so, I mean, I see this work firsthand and it's incredible what you are doing. Thank you. Um, so my last business, I grew from 30 to 1,000 employees in three years. It was a nine-figure company. 
and like not like a barely nine figure, like a legit nine figure company. And it had always been my dream to grow, to hit that $100 million number. And then I hit it and I kept like leveling up above it. And this isn't one of those like 100 million, like where people buy internet ads and, and it's, you know, 0.1% profit margin. It's a pass through. I, I have friends that own these companies where they're counting other people's revenue as theirs. This is like a real business. The business now manages $100 billion worth of mortgages. And I grew it from literally like a puny little company with my partners. I always say I'm like one of the rare CEOs that can take literally zero, have zero people and grow it to a thousand because it takes a different type of CEO at, at these different levels. And I was just like obsessed. I had obsessiveness and curiosity about being better at the different levels. And I just kept leveling up. Um, and, and so now I feel like I can run a business or help someone run a business probably up to half a billion dollars in revenue, maybe a little more. Yeah. I think you're underselling yourself because you and I both know once you have the skill set, uh, you know, at half half a, a billion, you can do it at a greater level, right? So maybe you haven't, but I wouldn't let that stop you. You have exactly what it takes because I've seen you in action. I know what you can do. And uh, I mean, th there's no doubt in my mind that it's just a matter of time until that is going to be your target client, billion plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think once you start playing at that level, it's, it's, it, I call it multiples of 10. It's it's how many multiples of 10 can I manage? Because what ends up happening is one manager can generally only manage 10 people uh, consistently without there being breaks in the system. So 1,000 people is just 10 hundreds, or excuse me, 100 tens, right? So it's 100 groups of 10. When you start doing that, it's like, what the hell is the difference between 100 groups of 10 versus 200 versus 500 groups of 10? It's all kind of the same, right? Because the skill set you need to manage 100 groups of 10 is pretty much the same skill set you need to manage 500 groups of 10, right? That's kind of the way I look at it. Um, and so uh, what happens is, is people can't get out of their own way for the first three or four groups of 10, right? They end up, because you got to have a, a, an effective manager. In my business, we ended up, I had 153 managers at one point. That's massive, Darius. Yeah, when you have 153 managers, you got to build in, uh, systems and infrastructure. So to your point, I, I just say 500 million because I'm like, eh, if someone asked me if they're running a billion, you know, could I help them? Depends. I mean, I have clients that are a couple hundred million. I look at their stuff and I'm like, man, you're you have a lot of work to do, <laughs> right? So I was average. I was adding up. I, I have 11 clients right now, and their average revenue. Like real, real revenue is $68 million. That's the av my average client. And I ride shotgun with these CEOs. I go in there and I'm like, I need to get you to nine figures. And, and, that's, and I just look at it like, I, I literally just, and I'm like, hmm, how can I, if I was CEO, what would I do right now? And I just, I forget that they're even there. I'm, I, I kind of, because a lot of times the CEOs like, you know, it's, I had one guy say like, you know, you know, so it's like called, it said something made a reference towards he being my boss. And I laughed. <laughs> I said, I think you got this backwards, man. Um, <laughs> CEOs aren't used to that. Right. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm your coach. Like you're listening to me. And if you're not, it's cool. We don't have to work together because I don't care if you get to a hundred million, you care if you get to a hundred million. You know, and so I mean, I've been there. I've done that. Like for me, this is this is like I do this because I'm really interested in it. And it's fun. Uh, it's not because I have to do it. And um, and that's it. It's cool. It's liberating to be in that place. And that's a big part of your book, the whole lifestyle investor is doing things you want to do it. You know, not because the, the other stuff's taken care of for me now. You know, I've, I've made money, so the money part is it's a game now for me. Is like and the winnings say that I'm creating value. Um, so that's a big part for me is getting in there, ripping open the hood and saying, all right, what's broken. All right. Who's your, who, who's the problem here? All right. How are we set up to scale and then digging in deep and figuring that stuff out? So I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I just got off a call right now and, and what ends up happening at that level, you just have a different set of problems, right? They're big boy problems. Like, like, hey, I, uh, should I buy 10 more percent interest from my co-partner? And, you know, and it's I got to go get a, a you know, an eight figure loan to go do it. And should I, you know, buy this big asset or should I acquire this company or should I go and get venture capital or should I do a licensing deal with a Fortune 100 company? Those are all problems I've actually dealt with. You know, like those are all things that approach that appeared in my entrepreneurial life. Every single thing I just said I did. 
Some of it was raising nine figures, you know, trying to raise nine figures. And should we go public? And should we consider becoming a SPAC? You know, like these are all these things that I, when you start playing at those levels, you do. And when you're playing at the eight figure level, you're not because you're not quite big enough yet. So uh, for me, I like digging in and looking at that. And then what I've done now is where you and I have really connected is I'm like, well, I don't have to be the CEO of the company to, to apply these skill sets. Maybe I want to just be the investor. Maybe I want to build a fund and start buying these companies and and really help them in a different way. So that's where I'm, that's my new chapter I'm playing with. Even with the coaching as I was telling a, a good friend of mine said, I'm pretty sure this is going to turn into a private equity for me. Like I really love, love looking at it. I don't want to operate the companies. I'm, I'm, I did that for 20 years and I love it. I learned a lot, but I'm, I think I'm, I'm at a new stage. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, it's great having the operating experience because that's why you can do what you can do. Uh, so it's, it's necessary. It's uh, most likely mandatory. Uh, most people really need that to be able to be in a position to coach and help. But once you've done it, you realize all the responsibility, the weight, the pressure, everything falls on you. And it really is fun when you can switch that around and you can either, you know, A, do what you and I have done a lot of, which is advising and consulting companies, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs, which I think is great because then you get the like part of what you like, which is solving problems and creating value, but you're not stuck in the day to day. You're purely working on the business, not in the business, which is ultimately the way that you should have been doing it originally when you were running a company. But sometimes you're too busy to even know that that is an option or it's, it's an afterthought, right? It's like 10 years later, you're like, that's what I should have been doing. But I didn't even think that that was something to do back then. You know, what's funny is I had such an aversion towards the actual doing of work that I was really good at pulling myself out of the business. Like, and this started literally, I mean, my first company I built was uh, number 40 in 500. And I was 28 when I got, when we were awarded that I was 25 when I started the company. So talk a little more about that. Yeah. So I, you know, I started off as an entrepreneur, like my dad was an entrepreneur. He owned gas stations and and he was kind of a victim of the, of the whole Iraq Persian revolution. So uh, I was born here with my brother and, and, but my mom's American, my dad's Persian. And so I grew up around an entrepreneur. I grew up around an, a guy who was in the business operating gas stations. And frankly, he did not enjoy that business. Like he was a really smart guy and not to say Gas station owners aren't smart guys, but that's a like that's a grind of a business. Uh, I worked at gas station for from the age ten till eighteen, um, so I grew up watching someone be an entrepreneur, and it was just like that was the norm. My parents, my dad did entrepreneurial things. He owned real estate and bought, bought and sold gas stations, and his whole thing was you don't make money selling gas, you make money selling gas stations. So I remember learning that lesson when I was sixteen. So I was lucky to have that learning at a very young age. What it ended up doing was making me not very employable because I always just looked at things as a business owner. Like uh, naturally I would do it because I was brought up or in that, that environment. So uh, when I was 20 years old was when I had my first big business failure. I had a nightclub business that I had started that failed. It was my first six-figure loss. I got killed, didn't do, made some really bad strategic decisions and didn't do my homework and lost that business pivoted for, you know, I, I'm 22, 21 pivoting, right? Well, that's kind of a funny idea, but pivoted and pivoted and started a magazine and started, you know, another nightclub business and ended up in the mortgage industry as a day job because they paid commission only and I can make a lot of money. I love it. R- real quick, if you're going to lose money, lose it in early, as early in life as you can. I mean, I love that you lost money at 22 you know, what a great time because you can make that back. You have so much life in front of you. You have like, it's just such a, uh, an ample like learning ground, you know, when, when that's the case, this is so cool. Keep going. I, I love your story. And and by the way, this, you know, getting into the lending space, I feel like this was maybe the, maybe one of the defining moments, one of the huge moments in the trajectory of your professional life. For sure. Yeah, for sure it was. So I, um, my brother was actually, we were in lending from high school. My brother got a job, an after-school job at a mortgage brokerage, got me that job. So I worked at a mortgage company in high school, but my brother was not a very good student. He was a really good salesman though. Like 
top 0.1%. So it was the first thing. He wasn't a very great athlete growing up and he wasn't a good student because he was like this attention deficit disorder and just wasn't a naturally gifted athlete that at, when you're young, even if you're a hard worker, it's not necessarily going to overcome athletic ability when you're like 10. You know, and, and we grew up in suburbs of Orange County, which were super competitive for that type of stuff. So so he kind of got in with the bad crowd, but he got this job at a mortgage company, always a super hard worker. And he ended up he was like a savant. Like there was a call center. There's 20 telemarketers. Let's say you had to get an average of two uh, interested people per day. The whole group, the whole place would get caught 40, 20 would be him and 20 would be the other 19 people. Yeah, it was amazing. And so he stuck with that. And when I was in college, he was doing that. So when I got out, it was like, well, I could go get a, I have a degree in business economics and accounting from UC Santa Barbara. I'm like, well, I could get a job working at like a big five accounting firm, or I could go to sell loans. And and my brother was making six figures at the age of 22. So I was like, well, this is kind of a no brainer if you ask me. So I went and started working uh, commission only while doing the entrepreneurial stuff. And then, you know, that kind of, I got, once I was, as we started making a lot of money in mortgage, it was just, I just followed the money. Cause for me at that point, I was very, 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 very money motivated. Like I wanted to make a lot of money. That's all I cared about. I was tired. You know, I've been, I was 21, 22. I had never had money for 22 years. My parents did well, but that was their money. And it was made crystal clear to us that that's, this was not like, you got to go earn your own money. So I paid my way through college for the last two years. I was broke and I was like, I want to make money. So that's all I cared about. And the mortgages from what I could see were, was the path of least resistance to get there. So I did it. And then I started working. I got fired from my first job in mortgage, funny enough, because they didn't have a training program. Uh, My brother was like the top dog. I was the, I just didn't, they called me college boy and fired me basically because I was smart, but I just didn't know the business and they didn't really have any systems to train anyone. So I ended up leaving that, got into stock trading, got back into mortgage because it was 9-11 and it was not a great environment to be a stock trader in. And um, started working at a small mortgage company in San Rafael, California, Marin, California. And I, I quickly grew that thing from a one person shop to a 10 person shop and I was doing everything. I was basically building someone else's company for them. And at one point I'm like, why am I doing this? Like I'm getting, I don't get paid anything to build this guy's company for him. He's a nice guy, but he's not really paying me anything. And I'm literally running, I'm building someone else's company and I'm being paid commission only. And I said, well, I don't need to do this. I'll just do this for myself. So at 25, I left, I started my own shop, uh, me and an assistant. But like I said earlier, I was always like, I don't want to do actual work. I just want to build an awesome company. And I didn't even know what that meant then. I just knew it meant like, I'm like Richard Branson and and Steve Jobs. And I'm thinking of these, like, I literally have these huge aspirations. Now I'll say this, and you'll appreciate this. When I had my first failure at 22 with the nightclub business, well, before I got it back in the mortgage, when I failed, I got fired from my job in that business. I lost a six-figure business. I lost six figures in this business. It wasn't like I had, like literally I lost a hundred grand and I tapped out that happened the same week. And so I was like super depressed and I locked myself in my bedroom and I read ever, every single Robert Kiyosaki book I could get my hands on rich dad, poor dad, cash flow quadrant. I mean, e-myth. I started just going, I just, any book I get my hands on to read, I read for the next four months. That's awesome. That was my like, that was like my cure for my blue, my entrepreneurial blues. Well, think about it this way. Most people, when they get dealt the hand that you got dealt, they fold and you doubled down and said, no, I'm just going to read and I'm going to become smarter and I'm going to become better and I'm going to learn from these mistakes, but I'm most certainly not giving up because I have huge aspirations and I love that. And we share that, you know, you and I dug into all the, you know, we've talked about this at length, all the Robert Kiyosaki books. Those are huge for me too. I mean, I wouldn't be who I am today without, without those books and without his influence. Yeah. Cashflow Quadrant saved my, or totally changed my life. What was funny is I still didn't, I didn't start applying it probably till much, much, much later. So you, you were smart and got applied it much earlier than I did. I, really am just now starting to apply the investor mentality. What what I did, and part of it was I got on this really crazy entrepreneurial ride 
where I, so I started my, my company after I left, uh, it was all Bay mortgage was the name of the company I'd built and then left. I started my own business twin capital mortgage, but it was just me and an assistant. And I said, and I made a bet with my brother. So my brother's down in Southern California, mind you, at this point, we're 25. He's making 30 grand a month, like killing it. And I was probably making 15 grand a month, but to me, which was a lot of money then, cause I was, you know, like that's 180,000 bucks a year. And I, um, I said, hey, why don't you come up to San Francisco and be my business partner? And he's like, well, why would I do that? I'm making more money than you are. And I, and I, and I said, well, I got to bet. And this is funny. He, he was engaged to be married at the time, and I didn't like his fiance. Uh-oh. So, I, so I said, hey, I got, I got an idea. This is like July, June, June-ish, July-ish of 03. I said, the month I make more money than you do, you have to break up with your, girl, your fiance, and you have to move to San Francisco and be my business partner. And so, yeah, all order. And he took it. He took the bat. Yeah, because he didn't. He was like on the ropes with his with his his fiance. Yeah. It wasn't like it was it was going in the wrong direction. But but he it, so he was looking for an out, I think. And I gave him one. So fast forward, I opened the business July fifth, something like that. Oh three, July, August, September. The business makes a hundred thousand dollars of revenue. Like I, I like. Like came out swinging, yeah, yeah. Like that and, feels so good after working so hard, and then all of a sudden you see the fruits of your labor. So yeah, so 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 within a week he quit his job and moved to, moved to San Francisco, and became my business partner. And that day was the day I put took myself. I started working on the business, and I wasn't working in the business anymore. That day, like literally, I was like, all right, I I don't want to be the salesperson. My brother's a, like a savant for sales. I'm just going to start building the company. And so a lot of entrepreneurs, like you were saying, they work in the business. And I was really quick to work. I like, I'm a strategic influencer. So for me, it's strategies like my, I love being in the strategy brain. I love being in the influence brain. The the doing, the execution works. It's not, I just don't like it. It's not, I, I feel it makes me tired. The other stuff gives me energy. Um, and so I started working on building the business. And I will tell you, I, that business grew like crazy. It grew from, a hundred, I don't know, we did 320,000 and two and for a half a year in 2003 to 2006, we did 8.4 million. Wow. That is incredible growth. Yeah. And, and that was, I was, and I didn't know, Justin, I had no idea what I was doing. Literally like trial by fire. It was, and it grew to about 150 employees. And I, and most of my employees were older than me. You know, I was just this like young kid who was just getting after it. Now the mistake I made, which was a great lesson and it was a painful lesson was the business was a subprime mortgage lender. And this is where, and listen, I was in company of a lot of great people like Lehman brothers and Bear Stearns. And, you know, there was a lot of smart people in the room that were in the same bed I was in, but it gave me some perspective around trusting my instincts when things don't feel right. And so when I started looking at the type of product we were selling and I, I remember asking my head of capital markets, and we went from being a broker to turning into a bank, mortgage bank. Um, but we were a small retail shop. I remember asking, I said, what would happen if stated income loans would go away? And by, mind you, two thirds of my business were stated income loans. And real quick, I need to, I need to interject real quick because I, I want you to elaborate on subprime mortgages because I, I would imagine not all of our listeners are fully aware of what that is. And then stated income, this is the craziest thing in the world. And I know this because I had a stated income loan back in 2005, where basically I got to say how much I made and I didn't have to prove anything. Yeah, I literally it. wrote it down on a piece of paper, got a mortgage. It was one of it was it was so fast. And, and by the way, I was honest. I wrote down what I made, but I didn't have you know I was had started my own uh, business, and so I didn't have any. Um, th- th- there was nothing to prove what I was making. Like I had just started. No documentation. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So um, so 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 right now, if you look at the mortgage market, and and you know, I have twenty years of domain expertise in mortgage, so I'm. And I've done everything from telemarket, as I mentioned, all the way to managing what's the business I left and just exited now manages $100 billion worth of mortgaging assets, mortgage assets. So like literally, I know I'm probably one of the, there's probably three people on earth that have this experience and I'm one of them. My, the other two, the other two is my brother and my other, two, or there's four, my brother and my other three, two business partners. Um, very few people have actually done all those things because it's very rare that someone's starting as a telemarketer and working their way all the way to managing assets. But 
now, if you look at mortgage market, probably 80% of the market is going to be dominated by the, the agencies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Jenny uh, Mae. 20% is going to be 10 to 15, 20% is going to be uh, private securitization. That's going to be basically the private secondary market. Wall Street's buying those loans directly. Um, it's done through the bond market. If you go back to 2003, four, five, six, that marketplace grew from about 15% market share to, I want to say, 45 or 50% market share. It was a really high market share. And the agencies had to open their credit box. What that what that meant was you can, I could go and I say, hey, Justin, you want to create a mortgage? We could create our own rules for the mortgage. We, there's not these federal agencies that have their really strict rules around, you know, debt to income ratio or loan to value or these mortgage terminologies like you have to have. So right now, if you want to do a Fannie or Freddie uh, loan, you can only take on debt that equals about 40 to 43% of your total gross income. That includes taxes, insurance. Um, that also includes like your outs, other debts, cr credit card debt, minimum payments, auto loans, stuff like that. Taxes, interest, the mortgage that could be no more than I call it 43% of your income. For for Jenny May, they'll go up to fifty six percent of your income. And that's going to be FHA, VA, and USDA. These are all government sponsored. The United States government backs this, and it's probably ninety percent of the market now. Rewind all the way to two thousand six when I said the thing I just said out loud. It was fifty to sixty percent of the market. Oh, and the other forty percent was competing against that. So they were having they didn't have they had these programs where they wouldn't verify income and stuff like like. Fannie Mae had a, where they had a program where they didn't verify your income. Um, so there were these loans that were like, essentially, they allowed, they opened the door for what was called liar loans, liar, L-I-A-R. And so on private securitization, you could do what was called a ninja loan, no income, no job, no assets. Like literally, I could just like write on a piece of paper anything I wanted. And you're supposed to like be honest, but no one verified it. So... That opened up Pandora's box, and what and you know there was a lot of listen. If you ever want to see craziness, go on Wall Street and see CMOs, CLOs, CD, CDOs. They create these crazy, like uh, basically virtual instruments, uh, derivatives to then go resell, so that you can basically place that same one loan what became fifty loans, and you get fifty bets on the same loan. And then they cut it into tranches. I mean, I get really technical where first loss, second loss, and they kind of assign credit risk to these different tranches in the bond. And so what ended up happening, you can watch The Big Short by Michael Lewis. That movie kind of gives you a, a more interesting, entertaining version of what I'm talking about right now. I was some little puny little mortgage broker, barely banker, who was doing $30 million a month of this business. And I got crushed. Literally, my... $8.4 million a year business was had a run rate of 10 million at that point, went from a million dollars a month of revenue to about $150,000 of revenue literally overnight. Wow. That is intense. Like overnight, Justin, as in it may have gone from 1 million to like 80,000. And I figured a way to get it back to 150. Wow. Yeah. And so what, what most people don't realize when they're building their businesses is that your expenses accrue in arrears. I learned that the hard way, which means when I'm building my pipeline, my expenses that hit in September actually happened in July. So that's fine and Danny, unless your revenue doesn't show up in September the way it's supposed to. You know, a lot of people are experiencing this with COVID right now. So when your revenue drops from a million to 80,000, but you have a million dollars of expenses, which, by the way, at that point, I started like my margins were getting eroded. So I was at like I wasn't making it. I was I started breaking even for the first time ever. Like literally, my my I probably had about two million dollars retained earnings in the company that I'd saved up over years. It went to two hundred thousand in sixty days. Oh my goodness sakes! That had to be the most nerve wracking thing. It was a it was a life changing experience. What got worse though from it was digging was being actually not going bankrupt. Going bankrupt would have been God being nice to me, but instead God God let me live, and then I stayed in that pu like that puny I call it, they call it Walking Dead company. I was a Walking Dead company for all of seven, all of eight, all of nine, and then finally we got pummeled so badly with lawsuits from everything from our landlord to borrowers that we ended up shutting the company down in the beginning of 010. 
then at that point, I was still dealing with legacy issues, but all of 11 and 12, actually all 10 and 11 were me trying to figure out my next deal. And I ended up getting into a successful joint venture by 12, 11 that profited in 12. But I had five years where I showed up to work and I cut checks to go to work. It cost me $2 million to go to work between 2007 and 2011. It cost you money. Most people show up, they get a paycheck. You showed up with a paycheck to pay. Yep. I didn't, I didn't take a paycheck for five years. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it left some pretty deep scars. Um, where, and it was probably one of the reasons why I didn't start investing. Because when I started making money again, I just hoarded cash. I was like, I'm not, it is like, I was like, I'm going to stockpile cash. Like I was like a depression person with money under my mattress. Oh my goodness. So yeah. So that, that is, I'm now I say it out loud. That's the reason I never, I never really invested very much. I was like, uh, I don't, I need, I need cash in case I ever have my business melts down again. So, but what ended up happening was 13 uh, by 12, I had a successful exit of a joint venture I did with a company that ended up selling to a private, uh, a publicly traded company. I parlayed that into my next business, which was the money source. And I learned a lot about how do you scale a business? I mean, I scaled up and then scaled down. And then my next one, I scaled up. But in, at, at TMS, we scaled from 30 to 1,000 employees in three years. And that was a new experience for me. But I had learned so much by just being down in the dumpster such a long period of time. I mean, what I did is I used that experience. It was a painful experience. Five years, a long time. Uh, like five years, a lot can happen or not happen. And for me, it was just getting beat the crap beat out of me for five years straight. Yeah, I can't believe you weathered that. Five years. You have to be like the 0.0001%. You know, it's probably even more lopsided. I mean, that is unbelievable that you could weather it for five years, basically paying to have a job that I know you worked a lot of hours in. So it's not like you just showed up and clocked in and clocked out and had like a 40 hour a week job. I know it was way crazier than that. No, I was flying all over the country trying to build a business uh, for that wasn't, and it wasn't working. People uh, often say like, well, aren't, you know, I'm sure you, you, if, you know, I always hear people go, I wouldn't do it any different. Uh, and, and when people ask me, I'm like, I would never do that to myself again, ever. I don't care what I learned from it. There's, there's better ways of learning. And that's that, like that experience was a very, um, it was a really emotional and very traumatizing experience. And it took me a, a long time to get over it. When you do a business like that, I learned a lot about that, which was you really have to be cognizant of the, of the value you're creating in the world. And what I learned, and I was just young and naive. I, I wasn't trying to do bad loans and the subprime lending is, was well, like, like I said, I was in good company. It was normal. That was normal. It's it's not like people like you could look at it today and and there's, you know, there there's a negative connotation and there's history. You know, there wasn't history then. This is what everyone did. Yeah, it was unprecedented. And I mean, you you know it is because almost every major bank in the United States went down. So why is that? Because they were all they were all in on it. Everyone, if you wanted to be in real estate or real estate finance, you were a, you, you were a part of that machine. Uh, at that time. And if and anyone that says difference lying. So I, I, again, was young, naive. I didn't, I wasn't too focused on the product. I was like, oh yeah, this is just normal. Right. And it totally was. Well, and why do you even question it anyway? You have no reason to question it. Right. That's like, I mean, there's so many examples of, of that we could use on this where uh, you, th there's no reason that you're going to buck the system because you have no idea that this, that there's anything wrong with the system. Not yet. Yeah, it was just one of those things where it was ignorance was bliss, right? And so, my, but I but I got really hardcore about core values coming out of that because I I felt like I got punished for for doing for not for doing the opposite. You know, I was selling a product that had issues, and I just wasn't. I just I just wasn't. I didn't have a mindfulness around stakeholder value. I didn't have a mindfulness around creating value in the world. I felt like we were creating value in the world, but I was naive and I was young. And, and I, and I, what came out of that was you really do need to like be aware of stakeholders. You do really need to be aware of what value you're putting into the world. And if something doesn't feel right, then don't just do it. And I was already stuck in the machine. I had $10 million business. And what was I going to do? Oh, let's just shut it down. I don't like the products we're selling. Like, like by the time I recognized it, it was too late and it was, and I paid the price hard. We, you know, I got sued by borrowers. Like, like corporate bail doesn't mean anything. 
you know, I got personally sued. I shut the company down in 2010. I was being personally sued till 2013. Every single person who took a loan they didn't like named me in a lawsuit. And there was a lot of, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have anything, you know, there wasn't anything to go after, but you know, there's a lot of attorneys don't care. They'll see what they can get. And so I just, it, it really turned me off. And I said, I'll, I'll never put myself in that position again. And, and so I ended up getting really interested in, well, how do you build scale and how do you build a core value driven organization? Cause I saw that business didn't, there was issues around the values in the business, not like, like and lots of businesses have values uh, issues, not necessarily they're bad values, but there was a misalignment around values. We weren't all doing the same thing, the same way coming from the same place values wise. And so for me, I got really fit, obsessed with core values right around this time this, this thing happened. And I think it really stung me hard because I was dealing with the repercussions of, of being in the wrong business and making some choices that around product, again, following the herd mentality and not saying, well, okay, well, maybe I should question whether we're proving income or not, right? I just, I didn't even question it, nor did many people, but I paid the price for it in a pretty dear way. And you know, going to work for five years, half a decade, day in and day out, and not reaping the rewards or the benefits and being punished by lawsuits and you know just a bunch of problems, that leaves an indelible mark on you where you change as a human being, you know, and I changed. I, I, I said, I'll never ever have integrity be an issue in my business again. I'll never, ever, ever question a product we're selling. You know, I'll never have someone question it five years later. Cause by, by the way, no one questions it when you're doing it, they question it in retrospect. And, and, and then you're like, well, what do you mean? That was fine when we did it. And they're like, that's bad now. Yeah. As if people knew the whole time. Yeah. Well, and what's great though, is you were able to parlay all this horrible experience. And by the way, we can call, we can call it horrible, but at the same time, we can also call it amazing because it allowed you to pivot. It allowed you to shift. It allowed you to create and scale a company that was based on core values. It allowed you to have a massive exit, you know, which, which is exciting. In fact, this is a great segue into the next topic. I won't give away numbers, but you know, you and I, uh, we talk a ton about investing now. We're, we're part of the same investing group, which is, is really fun. And, you know, so I, I know some of these details. I know you had a killer exit. I know you don't have to work. I know that you have like a killer lifestyle and you could have an even better one if you wanted without doing any work. So, you know, you, you help build and scale this company, you exited, you are set now for life. But now instead of just, you know, kicking your feet up and going to the tropics and doing, you know, pina coladas every day, you're not doing that. You, you decided, hey, why don't I write a book on all these things that I've done? And let me help entrepreneurs do great things that I have learned. They can learn vicariously through all my mistakes and I'd love to know why you decided to do that when you could take the easy road. Well, so I started writing the book actually while I was still, before I even thought of exiting. And then when I exited, that was where I kind of leaned into because it was something that was important for me. And, and it was all around how I leveraged this tool uh, of, of core values to create high growth scale, right? I call it invisible scale in my book. And it's, it's my go-to tool. It's like, if I'm a carpenter, that's my hammer. Um, and because it, because I believe core values are the, the language of accountability. And for me, how do you build the most high level accountability is by creating high utility core values that can be viral in the organization. And then it becomes a tool for strategy and execution. And for me, I, I, I'm almost like I have a very like almost engineering mindset around it. How do I take this thing and then weave it around everything we do to create more productivity, more engagement, more profit, uh, a more impact, a better place to work. And those all become this like flywheel that creates more value and gets faster. And so uh, when I exited, I, I got asked by someone if they would help a friend of theirs, you know, scale their business. And, and I said, ah, I'm not interested in that. You know, I'm just, you know, I was kind of, I took, I told myself I was going to take all of 2020 off and then COVID hit and I got focused on the book. And then when the book was launched, I got asked to do this project and I, and I just said, ah, 
taking the rest of the year off, man. Like, like, like I wasn't even planning on working at all this year. I was planning, I was supposed to be in Spain. I was going to move, take my family and move to Spain for a year. I remember you uh, telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. That was what was supposed to happen. I should be in Spain literally right now. Um, but with COVID that got derailed and that's not happening anymore. Um, I think your clients are really fired up that that didn't happen because <laughs> you've got some raving fans. That's true. It's true. I, I think they're very stoked. I'm not drinking sangria right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, um, I got in there. I started working with these guys. It's an eight-figure company, and they're just really trying to scale. Like their their goals to you know basically ten x their business in the next three years, which totally doable for them. But but it was getting my hands dirty, and and it was coming in from a different perspective. And and I and I started with them in October, but I said, hey, September, we'll just like let me send me a bunch of stuff. I want to start digging in. And I, again, having this perspective that I, I talked about before, which is. I'm going to, if I was CEO, I go in, I'm like, if I was a CEO, what would I do? I don't care what they say. I'm like, I need information from you. And, 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 but like, I'm literally, I've got blinders on and I'm like, and then I come up with the plan and we start working on it. And you have no bias either. That's what's nice. You can walk in and it's not, it's not like you're, you're saying, well, we've always done it this way. So let's just keep doing it this way. In fact, we should change something else. You actually come in and you say, well, you know, let me just look at everything. Every options on the table. It's a total clean slate, you know? Well, yeah. And there's all these best practices I learned over the years that it doesn't matter what kind of business you are. So I have a client, one of my clients is literally a cannabis company in California. Another one is a BPO in India. Another one is a uh, poultry company in Canada. Um, and, and with them, it's more of a specialized project, but a lot of them are, are in the mortgage space because that's where I came from, but they're all over the place. And one of them is a, a marketing uh, education company in Florida. So I don't care. It, it, every company has the same issues, strategy, people, process, cash, accountability. It's all the same. Yep. And most businesses know their business. They know their business that I'm not going to tell them how to run their business better from the perspective of domain expertise, how I'm going to tell them, I'm going to look at it and say, are you set up to scale quickly, efficiently, and profitably, regardless of the product? Product doesn't matter. Product is a widget. Widgets, a widget. I could care less about widgets. That was, that's what got me into trouble with subprime because I just saw it as a widget. Right. I didn't really dig into like what the product was, but, um, but when mortgage, I used to tell my staff, I'm like, I don't care about the product. I'm happy we put people in homes, but it's just a widget. What I care about is building a high growth, high impact, highly scalable business. And I was the expert on scale. So when I go into my clients, I just say, if I was CEO, how would I scale this business? And it's always the same. All right, let's look. Do you have this? Nope. Do you have this? Yep. Do you have that? Nope. Do you have this? Yep. And I have a 50 question checklist. And I go through it and I think it's out of a score of 100. I think my highest client score is 50 at this point out of 100. The lowest is 19. And I'm like, all right, I'll get you about, I'll get you to 90. It'll take me time. And they're all these best practices for running a company. It has nothing to do with the product or the industry. That's all. It doesn't matter. It's, it's human beings. You want people to show up, do their job properly, care about the business, watch dollars and cents, and execute on the strategy and make sure there is a strategy. It's the same. Well, I, I can tell you. So here's the deal. I've got your book. In fact, let me reach behind me. Um, I have your book on my bookshelf. And you know I'm an avid reader. I read a ton of books. In fact, it's really weird when you write a book because you end up reading less books than uh, what you used to. So, you know, the, this last uh, season of writing was a lower consumption year of books. And this year, you know, with the book launch and, and everything this month, uh, I've only read three books, which is very small for me. Uh, and so I'm only part of the way through your book. I have not finished your book, but it is great. It is riveting. It is interesting. And I'm really excited for this to be, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have it done by this month. This will probably, you know, get done first or second week in February. But I'm uh, I'm just thrilled with what you've been able to create and then that you can put that into practice with, you know, people that I know. I mean, I know the people that are utilizing what you're doing. Yeah, it's 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 a new technology. My book is is the no one everyone misunderstands values and I'm like it unlocks maximum value in your business if you can operationalize values in a way that are sticky and viral and authentic to the soul of the company. And so core value equation does that and when I look at any business, like if you really want to level up, like you got to do it. So that's, that's, I appreciate all your kind words and having me here today. And 
Yeah, man. I'm glad that we've met over books. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. This is awesome. And and it's so funny because I originally thought on our you know episode today, we get into all types of investing because you and I have dissected some deals. We've gone back and forth on some stuff. I've liked some stuff. You haven't. You've liked some stuff. I haven't. We've liked plenty of stuff together, but it's always fun. I like having smart people that think differently that uh, can say, hey, did you ever consider this? It just makes all of us smarter and better investors. And so I'm so appreciative to have you in my life and in my world and someone that I can, you know, do life with, right? Uh, families and, and you know, us personally, but then also be able to do uh, investments together. And I think that that's so cool. It's so unique. Yeah, yeah, I know we we're supposed to talk about investing and we talked about my my first, my trauma, my first business that blew up, but yeah, it's... But it's great, though. It worked out perfect because this is what set the stage. And now you're at a great point where you are investing. And, you know, you you said before, you didn't have the ability to do it then. You you had, there, there was so much going on that you were just pumping everything into your business. And by the way, if your business goes really well, then that's a great strategy. Most of the time, businesses don't go really well, right? Less than 10% of the time a business makes it, you know, beyond what, five or 10 years. So, uh, most of the time, people that invest all the profits back into their business, it doesn't go well. So uh, where can our listeners find you? Because I have uh, enjoyed having you on and I know people have loved listening to what you've been saying. Yeah, you know, uh, therealdarius.com is my kind of my hub and you could go on there and connect with me on all the social networks, uh, social media stuff. So yeah, I'm at therealdarius.com, uh, books on Amazon and, and where all major books are sold. And yeah, um, those are the places to find me and see what I'm up to. I'm doing the greatness machine, uh, which you've been a part of and, uh, which is my show. And, and we're interviewing some cool people like Justin. Um, but yeah, those, uh, the real Darius is where everything happens. So go there, check it out, sign up for my mail list. And, uh, I promise not to spam. I only get send value. That's, that's what I'm all about. I love it. Well, you've added tremendous value here today. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your friendship. And to all of our listeners, I encourage you to take one step towards financial freedom. Take action in some way, shape, or form to live life intentionally by design, not by default. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.